through through the rest of the book of Colossians, it's going to be for you. And and quite frankly, uh, there's there's very little in terms of exegesis because it is so it is so simple, so plain, um, and so straightforward that um, there's there's really not much more I can say other than how we can apply it. The, the, the meaning, in other words, the meaning is clear, and we will we will spend probably a great deal of time. So, what does what does that really mean for me? Um, we're we're going to start in verse five, but um, if if you look at verse five, it, it begins with "put to death." Therefore, uh, now that word "therefore" is, comes after "put to death." Typically, we see this. Uh, this kind of word beginning the sentence. In fact, we see it in verse 12. Uh, but I, but it, is, it is instructive that in verse 5, it comes after uh, this imperative put to death, which means the, the author wants, wants to even more emphasize the putting to death part. But the therefore is still there. And so whenever we see the therefore, it usually points out some kind of conclusion, result, or purpose of what came before. And so... Uh, if you remember in verses 1 through 4, he, he was talking about focus and where we place our focus in life or where we place our primary focus on. And that is on heavenly things, on Christ in, in heavenly things. And the reason is because of our position. And, and he says we have been raised with Christ. Uh, we have died and our life is now hidden with him. Earlier on in chapter 2, we read that we have also been risen with him. So we are died, we are risen, we are, we are hidden, our lives are hidden with him. And therefore, we begin, now begin in verse 5, this very practical result uh, of all of those truths. And in essence, what we're going to see in chapter 5 through verse 11, but really again through the rest of the book, is Paul saying we need to become an actual practice what we really are in, in spiritual truth. All that we have read about and, and dealt with before has been that which is true of us. Now he's saying, now it needs to become practical. Since we are raised up with Christ, since our life is hidden with Him, uh, since we have died with Christ, we need to live like it on earth. Since we are raised with Christ in heaven, we need to live like that on earth. And that's really what he's going to do now through the rest of the book, beginning in verse 5. And I want you to, let's just do this. Let's read verses 5 through 11 all together uh, for context, and then we'll come back and, and look at some parts here. Uh, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Uh, the, the first thing I want you to know, so there are going to be two parts, really, to, to, the, to the passage today. And that is, the first part is, is God's radical call. 
look with me again at verse 5. He says, put to death. Now, this is interesting. How many of you have New American Standard? Raise your hand. Okay, I need to address this because New American Standard is, with the exception of one other translation that no one ever knows or reads, says, consider yourselves as dead to sin, right? Something to that effect. Um, so let me just let me just say something. Uh, this is very unusual. This is one of these very unusual places for a New American Standard and what they've done here. New American Standard is what we call a formal equivalent translation. In other words, they try to stick very very closely to the original form of the words and the grammar. They depart from that philosophy in this passage, in this verse, which is very. I, I would I'd be fascinated to know why they did that. I know I think I know why they did that. They, they take what's called the indicative, the, the the statement of fact in verses three, in verse three, talking about you have. Remember in verse three, you've died with Christ, and they take this word, which is an imperative, it's just a command. And so they, they, they put those two together and he, they, they take the command not as to put to death, but to basically believe that you, ha- you are dead. So that's where they come up with the uh, consider yourselves dead to sin, which is it's perfectly OK as a translation. But philosophically, they really depart from the way they normally translate the Bible. So it'd be fascinating to know why here of all places they do that. So for those of you that knew, I've raised that issue because those I know a lot of you have New American Standard. And, uh, and, it, and it reads very differently here. Either one is a valid translation, uh, but it, it just it was interesting to me that, that, that they departed from their normal uh, formal equivalent uh, philosophy here. That's why it's different. But notice again, let's go back now. He says, uh, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The, 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 the radical call is to put to death. Notice what he doesn't say. He didn't say, work very hard at controlling. He didn't say, do the best you can. He said, I want you to kill. Um, He calls us to radical surgery. And, And this really is keeping with the tradition of what Jesus taught. Keep your marker here and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Most of us will remember this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. This would have been, this again is very radical teaching. Matthew 5, 27, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He's not, he's not suggesting that you literally gouge out your eye or sever, remove your right hand from your arm. He, 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 is, he is making a point of, of a radical steps to, to deal with sin. And this is exactly what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to kill. I want you to put to death. Now, the question, that, that obviously is a metaphor. We, we, don't, we can't literally kill sin. So what does he mean by kill? It has this notion of decis- to decisively turn away from, to completely reject, to refuse to be controlled by. All of these 
All of these, these meanings are wrapped up in this word, this imperative, to put to death. In other words, to, to make a, a conscious decision to decisively turn away from and reject sin. And, and, and so often in our lives, we approach our sin through peaceful coexistence. That God has called us to go to war, to go to battle with our sin. Put it to death. This is a decisive action. Um, he said, I want you to put your sin to death. Slay it. And the reason I get sin, and look what he says, put to death. And I'm reading from the NIV this morning. He says, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Uh, what do some of your other translations say there? Put to death what? What is earthly in you? What is it? What is it? Your mem- thank you. Your members what? Remember that. That's the one that is probably, mo- when we say literal, most literal. Your members that are upon the earth. That's why a lot of our translations translate it differently. What does that mean, the members that are on the earth? This is a figure of speech called metonymy. A metonymy is when you take, it's a figure of speech where you take uh, a, a certain thing, um, a, a more concrete, uh, representation of a truth and, and so that it represents the whole. So in other words, he's saying your, your members, your physical body, your physical members are a representation of what your physical members do, namely your sin. So he's saying, I want you to, to put to death the actions that the members of your body that are on this earth engage in. And, and it's not limited just to physical, but as, as we're going to see it, it also is, is what we think. So, think of it in terms of that, that, for instance, if I said, I read Calvin last night. Well, I didn't read Calvin himself. I read Calvin's writings. So, when he says your members, he's not just necessarily talking about, you know, your arms and your legs and your brain, but those, those things represent the, the, the forum and the means by which we sin. So, so he's talking about our... Sin, um, those things that are part of our earthly nature or our worldly nature. Uh, look with me down at verse 8. He doesn't just say, put them to death, but look at verse 8. But he says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things. This really has, a, has the, uh, the notion of laying it aside. And not just laying aside, but throwing it aside. If you remember when we went through Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. What does he say? He says, I want you to throw aside everything that, what, entangles you, your sin that entangles you. And the, 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 the image was wearing a coat or an outer garment, taking the outer garment off and literally casting it aside. They, they would have understood this. That not, not just put it to death, not just decisively turn from and break from, but in addition to that, to take it off and throw it away. Now, it begs the question, how do you approach sin? And, and I'm going to ask you this. Don't, don't, say this out, don't say it out loud. If you're just, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it. How do you deal and approach sin in your life? As I mentioned before, do we ignore it? Do we, uh, do we sweep it under a rug? Whatever that means. Yeah, do we rationalize it? Do we justify it? In other words, this is a challenge for us. 
that Jesus comes and says, I want you to kill it. I want you to put it to death. I, I want you to make a decisive break from your sin. I want you to go to battle against your sin. Now, notice I didn't say, he doesn't say, go be good. Go be a good person. He says, I want you to put your sin to death. I, and, and this is a huge, this is a big distinction. I don't want you to go and try to be good, but I want you to go to battle against your sin. And I don't think I ever really consciously thought about it like that before until I really studied this. He wants us to confront and deal with our sin head on, to decisively reject it, to turn against it, to to, to have a decisive break from it. Uh, This is a radical call. No more ignoring our sin. No more giving in to our sin. No more living with our sin. But that now he calls us to put it to death and to throw it aside in verse 8. In this passage, he gives us two reasons for doing this. For putting it to death, to putting our, our earthly nature, that all that is worldly in us. He gives us two reasons. Look with me back at Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. Because of these... We're going to come back to those. These are the sins that he just, he just listed. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what's the first reason? He wants us to put to death our sin. Because the wrath of God is coming. Now, he's going to make an argument that not that you are in danger of suffering God's wrath. In fact, let's look at, look at verse 7. You used to walk in these ways, in the way you once lived. So he's saying... You need, this is how you used to live, but you shouldn't do it anymore. The wrath of God is coming, not on you for this, but he's, it's coming on these kinds of things to these kind of people, and therefore it shouldn't be named among you. The wrath of God is coming upon, and, and uh, how many of you have a translation that says, sons of disobedience? The wrath of, NIV leaves it out. Sons of disobedience. Now, this is, I think I need to draw attention to this, because sometimes if you read Bibles, you say, well, our Bibles teach different things. No, they don't. Some of our manuscripts, some of our Greek manuscripts have sons, the phrase sons of disobedience, and others don't. In fact, um, the manuscript evidence is split. Now, on, on, on the, the manuscripts that many, not all, but many deem the most important and most accurate, um, it's split among those as well. Uh, so that's why we have a difference. Some have included it. Some put it in a footnote. Um, we do see this phrase in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, the sons of disobedience. And so some have suggested that the scribes, when they came to Colossians, if they were familiar with the letter to, to Ephesians, would have probably added this phrase in to, to, to make it consistent with Ephesians. Um, we have to explain it somehow, but... That's beyond uh, the scope of what we do this morning. I just want to explain to you why there's a difference. The manuscript evidence is split, and it's split pretty evenly. So uh, I don't know that it changes the meaning one way or the other, but I think it's important in the sense that this is the kind of behavior that the, the wrath is coming against the sons of disobedience, not against them. Uh, th- these are people that are characterized by, by disobedience. So he's saying, why would you want to continue to do the kinds of things that unbelievers are doing and that, will, that, that the very things that will incur God's wrath. Therefore, we must put these things to death in our lives. That's his point. 
So reason number one is there, this is a strong warning that functions as a reason, and that is these things incur God's wrath. Why would we want to engage in things that incur God's wrath? Like it will be for the sons of disobedience. But there's a second reason. Look with me down at verse 9. He concludes by saying, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So what's the second reason? Look at it again. Why would you, how would you phrase it? What's the second reason he says we are to put sin to death and cast it aside? It's not part of you anymore. It, you know what? It's like it's like that old polyester suit. You know that's high waters. You know you got high. I don't. Is anybody? I, he has high waters, but it's designed that way. Uh, you remember? You know the old polyester suit that's high waters doesn't fit anymore. I would. I would give. No, I wouldn't. I'd give a lot of money if I could have my that old uh, prom uh, tuxedo I wore at high school prom. I was it was baby blue, powder blue, with you know what did they call it with the tail, the tail in the back, white shoes. What's that? Oh, of course. Yeah, the what do you call those? Those the frilly shirt, those the ruffles. What's that? Oh, of course. What, what would you think if I came walking in here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd be pretty impressed I'd still fit. No, you know what? It's time to take that stuff off. I, now, he, and notice what he, he doesn't say, take it off. What does he say? Verse 9. Look at the verse 9. Since you have taken it off. Now, NIV says old self. Some say old man. Um, Again, these are metaphors for our old nature. Our old sinful nature is gone. We have already taken it off. And we have what? Put on a new nature. We have a new nature. We, we, we now have a new capacity. We now have new affections. Our, we, we are, our heart is changed. Our heart is different. So he says, the second reason is that you've already laid aside that old nature, that old suit, that old, that old dress. Take it off. You've already taken it off. And you've, and you've put on a new suit. Um, turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth or regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now this this phrase, washing of rebirth or washing of regeneration, is a genitive. So is it? The washing, which is regeneration. I take this as we were washed when we were regenerated. 
When God changed our heart, He washed us. He cleansed us from our sin. And we were renewed. And so what Paul is saying is, you, you've already been washed. Remember, remember Jesus with, with Peter? What did He say to Peter when he, when he wanted to wash His feet? He said, no, wash all of me. He said, no, you've already been cleansed. We only need to wash your feet. You just need to confess. You, 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 your position is one of cleansing. Your position is you are a new person. Uh, Colossians five or uh, second was it Galatians five seventeen? You you are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So he's saying the reason why we put sin to death and we cast it aside, all these sins, is because number one, this is how non Christians live, and this these are the very things that will incur God's wrath. Number two is it's not you anymore. That's not you. Your old self is has been taken off and you have been regenerated. You've been renewed. And, and you need to live consistently with that. Uh, in fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In, in, as you're turning there, Colossians 3 says... You've put on your new self, you've taken off your old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's present tense, in the process of being renewed. So we've been regenerated, we've been washed, we've been cleansed, but now we are continuously being renewed, according to Colossians 3, verse 10. And then we see this also in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, he says. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He's saying, listen, these things that we're going to look at in a minute that he's already talked to them about, he said, you, you need to put these things to death. You need to cast them away from you. Number one, because these are, these are characteristic of the sons of disobedience. These are characteristic of, of those who do not know Christ and upon whom the wrath of God, they will incur the wrath of God for these things if they don't repent in turn. That it shouldn't be named among you. But number two is, these are not consistent with who you are. It's like wearing your old prom Tuxedo, take it off. It, that, that, those days are gone in many different ways. Those days are gone. So this, this is a radical call, guys. He does not say, listen, I want you to kind of um, you know, do the best you can. We are, he doesn't say, listen, I know you're a sinner. Just do the best you can. I, I get it. No, he says, I want you to put it, put it to death. I, I, want you to, I want you to go to war against your sin and decisively turn from your sin. Um, which leads me to the second part of this passage, and not just a, a radical call, but a call to the practical holiness. Very practical holiness. Holiness is very practical. We try to make it, you know, there, I guess there is a kind of an ethereal sense of, of uh, a transcendent sense of holiness, but, but when it gets right down to it, holiness is just for us, it's very practical. Um, and, and Paul just gets very practical. So, so let's look at the 
practical holiness. Go back at verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, uh, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he, he lists some of these things. Now, it's not limited to these things. Because now, cause here's what I'm going to do. We're going to read through these and probably uh, you're going to say, phew, phew. glad mine isn't on this list. So these are representative. Okay. Uh, first thing, what is he, what's the first thing he says? I want you to put to death what? Sexual immorality. This is the, the Greek word is porneia, and you don't have to be really bright to kind of figure out what, what that kind of translates into our our language into English. But it's not limited to that. This was a very broad term that that really described in porneia described any kind of illicit sexual activity. It could be fornication. It could be adultery. It includes uh, homosexuality. It includes prostitution. It includes bestiality. By the way. Hold your hats culturally because that, that's what's next. Okay, in our culture, it's going to come. Um, so th- th- this wasn't limited just to fornication. This was a very broad term of any, con- any kind of um, illicit sexual expression. And any, any sexual expression outside of marriage is illicit, is wrong. Okay? So, he says, I want you to put to death all the sexual immorality in your lives. What's the second one? Impurity. And this is just getting so painfully obvious and painfully <laughs> simple. Impurity. Probably moral impurity is the implication here. Uh, improper uh, activities of the mind, of the heart. Um, this probably more is an internal issue. Whereas sexual immorality is more external, impurity would be more in the mind. This would this would be things that we look at, things that we that we contemplate in our minds. Impurity. What does he say next? Lust. Some some translations say passion. Um, these are desires, lustful desires. What's lust? Lust is is any intense. Uh, often uncontrolled appetite. So lust doesn't have to only be sexual. Some people have a lust for power. Some people have a lust for possessions. Uh, so lust is simply any uncontrolled appetite. Um, that's why I think some translations offer passion. These, these, but the, the key here is uncontrolled. Uh, intense and uncontrolled and often unchecked. That's what we mean by lust. So he says, put it to death. Um, What's next on the list? Evil desires. Probably very similar to, to lust, although probably broader. Um, not quite sure uh, a lot of the distinctions there, but we do know the last one, greed. What's greed? How would you define greed? You want to take a shot? How would you define Greed. Okay, here's the here's what's that? Okay, wanting more than yeah, that's basically it. When enough is not enough, that's a very simple description, I think. When enough is never enough. Worry is when you are, you're afraid you won't have enough. Greed is you're afraid you can't get enough. And what what does he say? Greed really is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? He said greed, which is idolatry. 
We don't commit idol idolatry. We don't. I don't have a statue of Mary in my house. I don't have uh, a statue of Buddha and Buddha and Buddha, Buddha and Buddha. It's a new. It's a new. It's a new religion. Uh, Buddha. Uh, but what does he say in terms of idolatry for us? Greed. Because what 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 is on the throne when we're greedy? Stuff. The only place that. The only person who deserves that place in her life is God. So he says, I want you to put these things to death. Add your own. If you actually have a pen or pencil, you could go ahead and add your own in there. We all know what ours is, right? Just put it to death. But he continues the list really in verse 8. And, and interesting, some try to make a huge, try to figure out a huge distinction between the list in verse 8 and the list in verse 5 and 6. I don't know there's a great deal of, of difference other than he's just continuing. And the first thing he says is anger. Verse 8. You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Now, is he talking about all anger? No, of course not. Listen, when we hear that babies are being murdered every single day, that should anger us. We should, we should be anger. We should be angry over that. But he's talking about what? Um, a hostile disposition. Uh, anger, I try to describe anger as, it's like, a, it's like hot coals. That's anger. Anger is just this burning, the, the, the coals, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about? The, most of you have propane these days. Most of you young people have pro, propane. I remember us old people, we had to use charcoal briquettes. And... Uh, and they, they, you know what those are? They're little black things. And they glow and the heat, it's just that simmering heat. That's kind of what anger is, that simmering heat under the surface. Because number two is what? Rage. Some say wrath. Uh, so what, what rage is to anger is, is if you take some lighter fluid on some hot burning coals and squeeze it on... Those hot burning coals, that's rage. Get rid of it. Throw it, throw it aside. Um, next, what is the next one? Malice. What's malice? Okay. Well, that's slander. That's coming, I think. Yeah. You're right. Hang on to that one. Malice is premeditated intent to do harm. If you, have, if, if you have a heart of malice towards someone, you are intent on doing them harm. You are wishing ill will upon them. What does God say we're supposed to do with malice? Cast it aside. Put it to death. Next. What's next? Slander. Tom, what's slander? <laughs> oh, you got that mixed up. <laughs> yeah, slander is, is, is making false statements. Isn't it interesting? The Greek word that is translated here as slander is blasphemia. It's interesting that it seems like God considers um, when we uh, intentionally s- uh, misrepresent or, or speak uh untruths uh, about another person. It is as if we are blaspheming God. Slander. Malicious. False statements. 
Uh, now, next one. Filthy language. And I think that's probably most illustrative of this word. Some translations have abusive language. It's probably this notion of filthy language. Um, th- that which is crass, that's coarse. I guess I would say gutter language. Um, he said, put it to death. Throw it aside. Ephesians 4.29. Anybody have Ephesians 4.29 memorized? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. James talks about, you know, with the mouth we, we praise and bless God, and yet at the same mouth we curse men. He said, brothers, this shouldn't be. In fact, look with me at, at Ephesians 5, verse 3. You're going to see very, a very similar teaching to, to Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And that's kind of what Paul said in in a different way, in Colossians. You're no longer these kind of people. This is improper for us. Verse 3. But among you there must not be a hint of sexuality or any kind of impurity, greed, because these are improper. Nor should there be, verse 4, any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I think that's what he means by this this language, this this filthy language, this gutter language, this we we live in a very coarse culture. My goodness, I wrote it. I drove a school bus of middle schoolers um, and and senior high girls. You would be, it would make a sailor blush. As the old saying goes, the kinds of language that they use. And I'm not just talking about words, but we're talking about what those words represent and the things that they talk about. Um, it, it's unbelievable. He said that should, that should not be even named among you. And then finally in Colossians chapter 3, do not lie to each other. Boy, okay, who wants to exegete that? You don't have to go to seminary to exegete that sentence. What does that mean? Don't lie to each other. Um, God has extended to us a radical call to practical holiness. He doesn't say, I want you to do the best you can. He doesn't say, uh, ignore it. It's okay. I understand. He doesn't say any of that. He says, kill it. Put it to death. Cast these things aside. It is not a call to suppress. It's not a call to simply control our sinful acts and and attitudes. Instead, God says, I want you to eradicate them. I want you to um, exterminate them from your life. The force of this verb, put to death, the old King James was mortify. And it makes the action that is to be taken by us to be taken decisively. Because it's in what's called the aorist tense. I would have expected God to put this in present tense. 
be continually killing, be continually putting to death your sin. He doesn't say that. Aorist tense was the most simple tense, Greek or verbal tense in Greek. It's just simply, it's simple, completed action. It's, it was done. Just do it. It's decisive. It's not, you know, keep trying to kill your sin. And you know, He says, no, make a decisive decision to turn from your sin. Put it to death. And I know, that, I know you're going to say what I would say. I can't do that. You know what God would say? Yeah, you can. Now, does that mean that I'll never sin? No, of course not. But there needs to be a, a conscious, decisive break to put my sin to death, to go to battle against it, to kill it. The, the action that he calls us to take is to be taken with a great deal of decisiveness, but also with a sense of urgency. This is in an imperative mood. It is a command. It's not consider yourselves dead. It is put to death once and for all. It is a call to a, a vigorous act of determination. Remember, we, earlier in the service we talked about confession, right? That, that what do we do with our sin? We, we, we ignore it, we rationalize it, we, 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 we feel guilt and shame and, and we carry it around with us. We put it in our backpack, and like a big backpack of rocks, and we carry it around. And God is saying, I want you to, I want you to get rid of it. I want you to put it to death. God the Father has put a contract out on our sin and He expects you to be the one to put it to death. He expects me to be the one to put my sins to death. How do we do that? Very quickly and then we'll close. Romans chapter 8. And this opens up a whole new area of discussion, but just for now... Romans chapter 8, verse 13. You might write this down. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We do it by the Spirit. By the Spirit of God in our lives. He says, put to death all that's in you that is worldly, that is earthly. There's no peaceful coexistence. Don't treat it with medication. You, 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 this drastic surgery, you cut it out of your life. That's practical. Those of us like practicality, that's practical. But boy, it's radical. How do we treat our sin? How do we, how do we confront our sin? We put it to death, we cast it aside. I know that it genders a lot of questions. At a certain point, that's the bottom line. As we go to battle, we kill our sin. Let's pray. Father, I, I know there are a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. But for now, Father, all we need to know is that all of those things in our lives um, that, that, that are not consistent with our new nature, we need to approach them from the standpoint of putting them to death, to take in a decisive, urgent action to say, I'm, I'm breaking from this sin. I'm no longer going to allow this sin to control me. I'm no longer going to allow these things to have control of my life. Whatever it is. However small, however great. So, Father, we pray and we ask that through your Spirit you would empower us to put our sin to death.
we will fall, we will blow it, but we no longer want to rationalize our sin. Father, we never, no longer want to sweep it under a rug or just ignore it. But Father, we want to put it to death. And when we disobey and when we sin, we confess and we move on. Father, thank You for the, the practical nature of Your Word this morning. Not a lot of exegesis. Anybody could have preached this sermon. So, Lord, I pray now You would empower us and, and equip us to do it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?